Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. <laughs> well, folks, uh, thanks for joining another episode of the Foundation Podcast. As you know, with each of these episodes, we usually have a guest, someone who has made a mark in his or her field and who also has a distinctive perspective about one of the policy questions in American society. And I can tell you today, regardless of where you live, how you describe yourself politically or ideologically, the topic is relevant to you because the topic is energy. And it is such a privilege to have one of the most pleasant folks in this kind of work, Dr. Scott Tinker, professor at the University of Texas, director of the Bureau of Economic Geology with us. Dr. Scott Tinker, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Kevin. Thanks. So a lot of people, when they hear the introduction about being a university professor and focusing on energy, will wonder what in the world you and I are going to talk about for the entirety of this episode. And I, I, I can assure you, if you are listening, that you will really enjoy what Scott has to say. Your work, Scott, is really at the intersection of a lot of different factors, of course, politics and policy, but in particular, the most important aspect of politics and policy, and that is humans attempting to flourish. So just in a real general sense, please give us an idea of the work that you're doing on a week-to-week -week basis. Well, my, my kids and my colleagues would say no work. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? But, you know, I, I've evolved through a career in energy and was born into it, actually. Uh, my dad was in the oil and gas business his whole career with Shell. And my kids are in it as well. So I've kind of been in this energy space a long time. And I try to understand both the science and technology of energy and also the, how that plays on the environmental aspects and the economic aspects. And of course, then that brings you right into some of the regulatory and policy things as well. And not just in Texas, Texas being very important because it has so many components of these things, but also the nation and the world. And it's really fascinating space to be in. I've enjoyed it very much. I don't claim to be an expert in anything. I just like to observe and get around and, and meet people and see things, facilities and energy and real the real world and it's led me to 60 countries i guess or plus or minus more coming up this year and lots of um, places and it's been uh, educational i think a lot of fun in many ways probably not the world of energy is not what most people think so given the travel that you've done and i think you're very very modest about the work that that you have done but given the, the travel that you've done why do you find that so interesting, that being energy? What, what, what's the story about energy that the average American who's interested in policy doesn't understand? Sure. Yeah, I, think, I think what most of us appreciate, perhaps at some level, but don't truly understand is that energy underpins everything that we do. Everything in our lives in a developed modern world depends on energy. So without it, I'd be 
sitting here hungry and naked in the dirt and I wouldn't be talking because <laughs> we wouldn't have a phone <laughs> or, or, or any way to transmit a signal. So it, it simply underpins everything we do in the modern world, not just the obvious things like putting gasoline in a car or paying for your electric bill, but manufacturing every, everything that we have. The food that we eat literally depends on energy. It is energy for our bodies, the water that we drink, everything. Uh, clothes that we wear, all of it depends on energy. So that's the relevance to us. And we probably understandably take it a bit for granted when we have it. We certainly don't take it for granted when we don't have it after a hurricane for a week or two. But Mm -hmm. it turns out that about three-sevenths of the world, three billion people don't have access to much energy and many of them no energy at all. And three billion people. Yes, three billion people. And and that's about eight United States, just to put that in perspective. Eight United States populations with it living in energy poverty. And that just leads to so many different challenges. Um, ones that, again, are some more obvious, food and clothing and housing. Some a little less obvious, education provided by the ability to, for example, read at night. Sure. Um clean water with energy, but then some even less obvious, Kevin, like the freedom and the empowerment of women. In many societies, women do so much work during the day from getting water at a river to cooking in huts over wood or dung stoves and dying of lung cancer and inhalation Mm that that they don't have any time for other things. Uh, immigration, a huge national topic now, migration, immigration, mm-hmm. really underpinned in many ways by healthy economies, which are underpinned by energy. So you don't see people trying to migrate away from countries that are reasonably healthy and in good shape. They're trying to migrate towards those. And if you begin to address some of that challenge, then you might see a bit more balance in areas like that. But environment itself, it's, it's ironic in a sense. It might appear to be a paradox or a dilemma, uh, but the most healthy environments in the world where humans are present, I'm not talking about pristine nature, but where humans are present, are those places where the economies are the most healthy because they can afford to invest in the environment. The regulations are there and, and take hold and companies and industries and businesses and people follow them and you have a reasonably good outcome from that if you want to see some of the most challenging environments in the world and i'm talking about water land and atmosphere and local air go to the impoverished places in the world so these things all just weave together in such a complex elegant way in many ways but really not simple and Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, you know, the fun parts, the great challenging parts, if you will, and is all of that technical stuff along with the social interactions of humans and different governments and and, uh, socioeconomic and religious and and educational backgrounds that we all bring to it, interplaying with energy. Very challenging. So when we talk about the concept of energy poverty, 
sometimes people who are otherwise following the news don't quite know what we mean when we say that. And you just gave a very thorough description of what that means. And it, and it of course, doesn't merely mean that there is a lack of access to energy. Like you said, 3 billion people in the world have at least very limited access to energy. Some have none. But it's that, that it causes a domino effect into other ways we would describe human flourishing or poverty, for that matter, the opposite of it. And for us in the United States especially, I think for anyone in the West, in the, in the developed world, we take for granted this access to energy. In fact, I'll tell you something that will not surprise you because you spend time with college-age people. And I was at home, I think, reading a Wall Street Journal article, and I, I mentioned to my 16-year-old daughter that I said, look, there are all these people about your age who don't realize that you have to pay for electricity. And she just looked at me dumbfounded. She said, Dad, electricity costs money? <laughs> and, and, and you realize that part of the problem in, in the United States especially is that we're victims of our own material success. And so much of that material success, as you understand better than anyone, rests entirely on the access to energy. And so it's interesting to me to sort of continue to weave together all of these different threads. We've been talking about the international places around the world, but I want to weave what we've been talking about back to a policy conversation we're having here in the United States about sources of energy. And, and we've, we've developed, and I'm not sure that it's a really good thing, kind of this good versus evil mindset when it comes to sources of energy in the United States. Some energy is good, some is bad, some's clean, some is dirty. I, I just want to invite you to kind of take us on a journey of what you think about how we have, have created those two poles of, of good energy versus bad energy. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm smiling at the electricity cost money <laughs> <laughs> still. Uh, um, and that's understandable. I think as you grow, you know, you pay electric bill, but you know, if you follow that little electron back out of the plug, which is where actually some people actually think it comes from, uh, the plug or the socket, if you will, and others from the wall. But, you know, I think most of us know that it's generated somehow. It doesn't, we don't mine for electricity. We don't grow it. So we have to create it. And if you follow that wire back to the original source, whatever fuel you're using to burn to boil water, make steam, turn a turbine and and run a generator or wind that blows and turns uh, its own motor generator, if you will, or hydro moving through that way or the solar, you know, light conversion and or heat to boil water. Uh, nuclear is basically the same, creating heat from a nuclear reaction rather than burning something. But these are all fairly similar processes of making electricity, not, does, not only does it cost money, it, they have different implications. And, mm -hmm. and they, every major society in the world to date has built its modern economy, modern major society on coal, every single one. And China has done it as well. And India is doing it and perhaps still has time for alternative approaches to that. But if you, and you say, well, why would we do that? You know, coal is dirty, it's bad. Um, well, it has aspects that are not good and particularly the environmental ones, if you will, mining for coal and combusting coal produces 
atmospheric emissions. It produces SOx and NOx and mercury and particulates and other things. These can be scrubbed out, but then there's a, a cost penalty to that, an energy penalty. It takes energy to scrub those things out, and that costs right. more money. But being done, uh, we haven't scrubbed the CO2 out of the coal stack yet. We can through different ways, but it's expensive, another large penalty. So what are the options to building an economy on coal? Well, you need electricity that's affordable, available, and reliable. And those are three of the four pillars of secure energy, affordable, available, reliable, and the fourth one is sustainable, environmentally sustainable. And nothing's perfect in that world. So if you're going to replace coal, you're going to do it with either nuclear, which is a base loadable, if you will, always on kind of source of electricity or natural gas power plants, which also are always on if you're running the natural gas plant. Mm -hmm. The challenge, hydro can be always on as long as we have enough water to fill the dam. And we in central Texas know that's not always the case. (laughs) Uh, We know that all too well. Yes. And many others do too. Um, Wind and solar are not always on. They're they're intermittent sources of energy, and that bothers people when we explain that sometimes. But they, they, you know, this concept that the wind isn't always blowing and the sun's not always shining is real. So you have to have some way to get that backup, if you will, whether it's batteries, which have their own challenges, or other sources of electricity that will come on when the wind is not blowing and the sun is not shining. A power plant, uh, pumped hydro where you pump water up a hill and flow it downhill, compress air into a natural or human built uh, uh, tank and release the air, Uh, um, capacitors, advanced capacitors, uh, flywheels, Uh, lots of ways to try to store energy so they can be used when needed and the other is not available. None of them are cheap. None of them are a good energy equation. They all take more energy in than out. There's a couple laws that <laughs> that, that spell that out. Not not uh, human laws, laws of physics. Right. But <laughs> you know, it 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 that's that's some of the big challenges that I think when we say electricity costs money that we don't really think about. There's a cost to everything at scale, and it's not just an economic cost. It's that environmental, energy, economic. Mm-hmm. Um, space, if you will. And I call that the center of all those things, the radical middle. <laughs> I wrote on it several years ago. People say, why radical? Well, because it's, it's lonely in there. You know, there's a lot of people out in their own environmental energy, economic places. But coming into that tough interplay space is not easy. They're, the solutions aren't always clear. You're not going to get everything you want. Sometimes you're wrong. But that's the place where these big challenges are going to be solved mm-hmm. um, and are being addressed and solved so that we can try to take on um, the challenge of climate change, the challenge of poverty, the challenge of affordable energy uh, to ongoing and growing economies. And that's the thing that I think young people, all of us, but particularly those coming into this space will flourish in, they'll do very well, but they need to arm themselves with the data and the facts and the knowledge that can be used in a way that doesn't try to make something good and something bad. 
Yeah. So your original question was good and bad. Right now, at least in the Western Hemisphere, renewable energy is good and clean and fossil energy is dirty and bad. And in fact, I don't think most of us understand how much good fossil energy has done for the world and continues to do with its challenges and how much good renewable energy can do. It's not to scale yet, but it's starting to grow, but it has its challenges as well. And I'm not just talking about costs, I'm talking about environmental challenges. Right. So I can tell you the challenges in oil and gas and coal and even nuclear related to the environment, I think they're fairly well um, discussed and taught in schools. What's probably not taught as much yet is where the the stuff that's going to be needed to capture renewable solar and wind comes from because although the sun is renewable, you know, when it's not, we have a different problem. <laughs> we, we won't go there. Right. <laughs> but, and the wind is, is, is steady in many places. Uh, again, longer term wind patterns change, but for now, let's call it renewable. The collection systems for wind and solar are not renewable. Right. It, it's a very low density form of energy, which means per area of the earth or per volume, um, the, the, the amount of energy in an area or volume is much lower with the sun and the wind than it is for coal, which is lower than oil and gas, which is lower than uranium and thorium. So by a lot, I'm not talking a little, by orders and orders of magnitude. So to collect the sun and the wind takes a lot of wind turbines. If you've driven out in West <laughs> Texas, through the Sweetwater area, you've seen them, and there, some love them and some don't. It's that's more of an opinion about how, what you think about the environmental impact of that. Or solar panels, um, whether they're photovoltaics or, you know, the towers and troughs, mirrors reflecting heat to boil water, which have their own set of challenges. But regardless, you have to build a lot of things, and that requires metals, it requires silicon, it requires um, various uh, rare elements in some cases. It requires transmission lines. If you're going to back them up with batteries, chemical batteries, again, cobalt and other kinds of elements. And, and I'm not talking about batteries the size of our cell phone, which those lithium-ion batteries have their own set of challenges. We charge them every night, but right. big, big batteries. Okay. And and so you man, where do those come from? The batteries, well, we make them. <laughs> we, we manufacture them in massive manufacturing facilities that are chemical plants. We call them gigafactories because that's a cool word. Elon Musk is a great wordsmith. Yep. <laughs> Gigafactory. But it's these are big manufacturing facilities, and then we transport them and use them, and they wear out. Just like the batteries in your car, the batteries in your phone, they wear out. So what are we going to do with them when they're worn out? We could try to recycle and refurbish. That takes energy and chemicals. But a lot of them are going to be put into landfills. So as we go to scale, that's already starting to happen with turbine blades, which are very long, 100-foot-long blades on a 300-foot tower. Mm -hmm. We tend to chop them up and try to bury them. Um, What's the lifespan on one of those, on, on the blades? Uh, still being tested, but plus or minus 20 years. And it needs a lot of work on it, mm -hmm. or it gets cut up and buried. We have 23,000 turbines in Texas now, or excuse me, gigawatts of wind in Texas now, 23,000 gigawatts. That's on about 11 to 12,000 turbines. 
times three blades per turbine. So, you know, we're not, it's not a trivial number of large things. It, it has been mined, manufactured, transported, constructed, will be deconstructed, cut up, and buried. And, and I just want to, I'm a big proponent of renewable energy and all energy, uh, but it all needs to be done right. And I think it's just very important for your listeners and others to think about the environmental challenges of all energy at scale. Yep. There's nothing that is without some cost. So how do we do that well and make sure that we're not trying to put one kind of energy in a place where it the energy resource isn't good? And that you know, example a good example of that maybe solar in Germany. They they're big renewable energy proponents in Germany and I admire them for that. They have a lot of wind. Many some of their citizens love it, some don't. It's put a different kind of look to the landscape. Yeah. For sure. But they don't have a very good solar intensity. It's kind of like Seattle. If you've ever looked at a map of Seattle, Washington, and Germany, they're pretty much the same. So what that means, if you're going to try to collect solar, you just need a lot more collectors than, say, West Texas or Arizona, right? which have great, great sun. And, and uh, so they're resources, and you can't force fit a certain set of things elsewhere waves and tides, um, oil and gas, coal, uranium and thorium, geothermal. These are all resources. They're resources from the earth, either to produce the fuel or the collection system to capture it. And that's what we have to understand and really think hard about as we look at the varying energy mix around the world. Well, Scott, I know a lot of our listeners will appreciate the explanation you just gave about this this tension, and it's an artificial one, really, between so-called good energy and so-called bad energy, and you've given us a sense of of why and how that tension has developed. I'm curious, as always, about the solution to that. And so, how, how do we break through this kind of artificial dichotomy of of good versus evil energy? Is it, it seems to me that any time in any policy area where you have a lot of money invested, that the stakes are going to be pretty high. You're someone, you wouldn't take credit for this, but you're someone who's a leading voice and trying to break through that noise and actually get down to the facts so that we, we can build a sound, comprehensive energy policy. I'm just wondering, what are, what are the steps toward breaking through that noise and and having more Americans understand that it's just not as simple as, quote unquote, eliminating fossil fuels and only having windmills and, and solar cells. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate the nice words that way. I think that every time I've wrapped my head around this, it comes right back to education mm-hmm. and education at all levels. So that kids in elementary schools, kids in middle and high schools, university or college, if they choose to go that route, um, and then certainly of the more uh, working public and policymakers, et cetera, is vital. And we have to begin to extract to the extent we can our own political views, which is very difficult to do. We're all biased by our own experiences in, in politics and, and, and business uh, that we are in. 
all of us are. So energy is just so important, though. We have to try to extract ourselves a little bit from that and look at it more on its face. We've tried to do that. I, you know, I set out on this journey six or seven years ago and made a film called Switch. Switch ended up being remarkably popular and still is. It's shown thousands of universities around the world. and It's like a cult not just classic. In, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe cult and maybe classic, but not together. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it, the nice thing, it's being shown in policy classes, it's being shown in business schools, it's being shown in STEM, of course, and, and other mm -hmm. places, not just sciences, if you will. We filmed in 11 countries, went to 21 sites to look at the best energy in the world at the time. Energy was the star. I had over 50 interviews with friends of mine and people that I met along the way and told a pretty objective story of energy, the pros and the cons of all of it. And that's that has had uh, a good effect. On our website, we have the film broken down, but also little one to three minute clips, 101s and primers and an energy lab with me in a goofy white lab coat and glasses doing experiments. You know, how do you, how does a battery work and what's in frac fluid and, you know, what's the scale of nuclear compared, you know, driving a Tesla, how many batteries are in this car? <laughs> so the things like that. And, and it's been really embraced by the environmental community, by the energy uh, industry, as well as educators. And that's nice. People say to me, mm -hmm. we don't know your politics on this, Scott. They're a little frustrated. What's your position? <laughs> I say, well, that's the biggest compliment you could give me. You know? Because this film wasn't, and this, this project, the Switch uh, Energy Alliance, is not supposed to be political. It's, in fact, it's attempting to be nonpartisan. Right. Now, there's still going to be lots of folks, let's say lots, five, six percent of people who they have their strong opinions about certain winners and and that's up to them. So they're going to not like the other parts that are shown. But a lot of people have come through and said, boy, it's, I, don't, I haven't read that anywhere. I haven't seen it like that. Thank you for showing that. Let me think more about it. And that's what we're after is the is the drive to think about these things and provide some materials. It can all be fact-checked. Those were all, the films themselves were all peer-reviewed, which is always humbling, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we no did doubt. and continue to do that. So that that's there. And we're working, again, I formed a 501c3 called the Switch Energy Alliance, and we are now making another film looking at that part of the world we didn't feature, the ones that don't have much energy. This film is called Switch On. And... It's not just people with no energy living in indigenous villages and mud huts and thatch roofs. Yes, it's them. In fact, we brought first electricity to that kind of village in northeast Colombia earlier this year. The switch team did and filmed the mm -hmm. whole thing and, uh, you know, give you goosebumps. But I'll tell you, the, the very last night after we had installed solar, dug the trenches, put in the conduit and the wires and the lights and the huts and the ceiling fans and one refrigerator and one pole in the center of the village on a, that they had carved with a 50 watt LED lamp mm -hmm. on top. That last night we had gathered for the feast. Literally they had slaughtered five goats in the darkness and we counted backwards in English, Spanish and the indigenous Arawako language. 
and flipped on the switch. And for the first time ever, they saw one another at night. And other than over a fire, it never be been seen by a satellite until that night. And 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 we had some moral conflict: is this good or bad for this village? They asked us to do it. We'd visited there a year before, but we think it will improve some of the th- aspects of their lives. Right now, they're having 10 to 15 children each because half of them die before they're six. They're right. Of, simple things, et cetera. So that kind of situation exists in a true energy poverty, not necessarily economic poverty. Mm-hmm. They were living an agrarian life that wasn't what you and I would call uh, modern, but certainly what they weren't wanting for too much, and they're very content people. Um, now, on the other hand, there's severe poverty in that kind of setting, and then there's severe poverty, economic poverty in cities. And and uh, urban areas where electricity exists all around, but you can't afford it. Um, so that's a different kind of energy poverty access, but but inability to get to it in the way that we're used to getting to it. The reason we don't know electricity costs money is because it's so cheap. And, yeah. and gasoline is actually very cheap, too, when you think about what it does for us. So... These are the things we're featuring in the second film to try to address some of these big, bigger global issues from an energy perspective on their effect on poverty. The education of those kinds of things matters so much that because you begin to think differently. When you really realize what, where we are and why we are here in terms of our present state of um, health both human health and economic health and, and luxury time, if you will, time to read and, and vacate and do things mm-hmm. that our, our ancestors never got to do. You know? and, and so yeah, they would find it unfathomable. Oh, it was unfathomable, yeah. I mean, dawn to dark. And that's what we did down in Gunchukwa. We worked dawn to dark because there was no electricity when we were putting in the electricity. So you got up with first light and you went to bed when it got dark. And, <laughs> and, and so these are the kinds of things that I think when we begin to educate ourselves, we say, okay, how does this all come together? And that an educated public then allows, I won't say requires or forces, but allows policymakers and regulators to do the right things. Right now, they're, of course, going to do what their voters want. And if the voter base is not educated with energy, then... They're going to be able. They'll do what, whatever the voter base wants, and let's just say that's probably not the most educated approach to it because mm-hmm. these things have not been easily accessible, and when they have been, they've often been with a political bias to them. So that's right. what we're trying to do, and I think it's so critical to provide the kinds of materials, access, and digestible formats, particularly film-based, because you know that we don't read that much anymore. We love watching short-format videos and. And uh, in the ways that, that our that our public can become a bit more facile with the information and mm-hmm. and then do what they want with it. Well, and you've you've put your thumb on the the right delivery medium uh, with with this documentary. So the the second documentary is called Switch On. And, and when do you anticipate this being released? It should be out within a year. We've filmed about a third of it already. 
I've been raising money for it. You can go to the switchon.org website and see things, but we'll be filming in Vietnam, India, China, Bangladesh, Kenya, Morocco, Algeria, Nepal, and probably a couple other countries in the next eight months. And again, not not the places in those countries that you might visit if you were going on vacation, but the, right. the tough parts of them and and trying to bring an awareness of. Ironically, a lot of the things that are done there with good intention, including what we did down in Colombia, to bring something is often aid-based. And it's not set up in a way that it will sustain itself. Um, right. It turns out if you don't have entrepreneurs who've picked it up, micro markets and, and, and capital of some kind working, then these things will not be self-sustaining and grow. And we, we understand that in a capitalistic market that we're in, but if it's purely welfare or aid-based help, it may be good at the beginning, but it doesn't last. And that's the great challenge that we're trying to bring to life here in this film is not just what's there, really neat you know, solar pumps for water or LN, or uh, LPG sto cook stoves instead of dung and charcoal and wood, um, a variety of things that are happening to bring microgrids, for example. We're trying to feature the ones that not only switch on, but stay on. <laughs> right. And, and that's a different challenge. And well, we it is, and sure. that's – go ahead. No, that, I, that, that's good. Yeah, yeah I, I was just going to say that that's one of the lessons of public policy generally, that even with the best of intentions, when we, we give our fellow humans a fish, but they, they don't possess – because of, in the case of these folks internationally, the way their civil societies have evolved, the means to sustain fishing, then we have a second public policy problem. We've seen that even in the United States with welfare programs, even if we were to say that they were well-intentioned and, and not political, and I'm sure many people would, would say that they're well-intentioned. Ultimately, these kinds of things don't necessarily serve the long-term interest of the recipients. And, and what's better is to be able to develop in a real natural way, longer-term way, a real desire to develop that access to capital. That is far easier said than done. You know that better than most because of your travels to these places. But I, I agree with you that it's, it's good as an initial step to give these folks access to energy. And then maybe someone down the line will, will have a solution of how they can take the next step. And that's really the, the point on which I'd like to close our conversation today. And that is to kind of get into your crystal ball, peer into the future for us, give us a sense of what you will be working on once Switch On is released, what, what's coming down the pike for you after that and, and therefore, what do you think we can expect, especially here in the United States and in the developed world, regarding energy policy in the future? Sure. Yeah, just two quick examples of what we were just talking about in Bangladesh. When they got first electricity, the entrepreneurs, the females, opened hair salons with it. <laughs> you say hair salons, but that's culturally very important. It gets a safe place for women to gather, creates an entrepreneurial right. setting in which they can make money and thrive and grow. 
another group in Africa called Solar Sisters is using solar energy to power their water pumps and, and wells so that they don't have to go to the river and collect dirty water. And they're entrepreneurial. And the women tend to give 80 to 90 percent of that money they make back to the community. Men are less generous. <laughs> so, <laughs> Imagine so, that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think there's some examples of that that work and can be grown. For me, we've got a couple other projects going on. We're forming something called the Switch Energy Clubs, which is these are energy clubs on campuses, campus energy clubs, both high school and college that don't have any energy clubs, and many do not. It's not just for science and engineering, again, but it, for a broad campus look, so they can start to have these conversations and bring different mm -hmm. groups in with materials that are objective and nonpartisan, and then we match them up with local companies and faculty sponsors. That's happening. We're piloting it this fall. We're really excited about that. That's exciting. We're filming a... Go ahead. That's exciting, getting on yeah. college campuses. Yeah, it really is. And and through the club setting, the students and faculty themselves run it. We're just providing the materials and some of the help and thoughts uh, and kind of a constitution to help them get started. We're, we're filming a course on energy. Instead of a textbook, it'll be a semester-long film-based course where I'll go around and film experts in their fields, in their own settings, talking about and showing us things, kind of an inverted classroom You'll watch it at night like you would read at night and then have the discussions in the classroom, much more affordable than a textbook. We're trying, again, with the aid that we get through Switch Energy Alliance, we try to provide these things, all of this stuff free. Maybe this energy course will charge a little bit, but basically the cost to deliver it. So that's exciting. And then a third film, Every you know, it has to be a trilogy always, right? <laughs> that's right. You, you know the trick. Yes, right. And, and right now, the working title of that is Making the Switch. This is going to try to pull these things together and really look at how and how and when these energy transitions take place. I think there's some conversation now that's saying it's like never before. It's the fastest transition we've ever seen. Things are changing so fast. And, you know, if you look at the actual fuel mix, it really isn't. It's, it's a slow, long transition. Demand continues to grow with population. And so how do we make the energy that exists meet the demands that are there in a sustainable way? Affordable, reliable, sustainable, secure energy for the world. And maybe focus a little bit less on trying to force one out and put another one in or et cetera, as compared to making all the energy that exists good for the world because particularly with adaptation to climate and the changes that are going on there, some natural, some human-induced, it's going to take all the energy in the world that we can get, um, coastal and otherwise. So let's make sure we have that energy and that it's, and that it's um, delivered in a way that is good for the land and the atmosphere, local air, and the water. We can do that. And I'm very interested in that and that's kind of how our third film is going to look at, at bringing all those things together in a good way well dr scott tinker the work you're doing is so important you as i, I said at the beginning of the podcast are one of the most pleasant people in this policy arena one of the most pleasant people on the planet i encourage our listeners to learn more about the switch energy alliance 
to learn more about your work. You have a, a very effective way of communicating this in a way that gets us to the solution. Thanks so much for joining us and best wishes for your upcoming projects. Hey, look, it's been a it's been fun visiting and a real treat and good luck in everything you're doing in the Policy Foundation. Look forward to visiting some more. Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast, brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.